up in May of this year, we are going to have a provincial election in this province where the top two parties going head-to-head are both led by a woman. Danielle Smith in the UCP and Rachel Notley in the NDP. So it begs the question, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Where do we still need to go regarding women in politics? To help dig into this subject this afternoon, we're joined by uh, Dr. Melanie Thomas from the University of Calgary. Dr. Thomas is a, pro- a professor of political science at the U of C. Dr. Thomas, thank you so much for being here today. There you go. Hey, it's yeah. your choice being here today. Thanks for having me. We have not one but two women vying for the top political job in this province in the month of May. Uh, what are your initial thoughts knowing that we're guaranteed to have a female premier? This is, uh, it's exciting in a way with um, uh, Canadian politics in general, and it's perhaps less surprising in Alberta politics. So maybe about 15 years ago or so, we had this run where um, we went from having no women premiers to having about like 86% of Canadians actually being governed by a woman-led government at the provincial level. And then as quickly as they popped up, a lot of them like faded away. And so some of this has to do with um, when women are likely to come into leadership. And it's similar um, for political parties like it is for CEOs, which is either it's companies that like people are not expecting to like dominate the TSX. Um, or if it is, it's because those companies think that they're in a um, position where things are not looking very rosy. And so it's this idea of like, maybe if we bring a woman in, this will like solve some of the problems. Maybe it'll make it look like we've solved a lot of our problems. Uh, and so in that sense, I would say what we're looking at now in the UCP and the NDP, um, in the NDP, um, when I've looked at this, uh, Rachel Notley's selection was very much what we would expect, whereas uh, um, when she was selected leader, it was a small party, uh, left-leaning, not anticipated to win the next election. And so this is the prototypical time when women would come forward as leaders. And then 2015 changed all of that, and she ends up becoming um, provincial premier. Um, you're both basically economic voting. So, like, elections are fun. We can't control them. <laughs> Two really interesting things that way. Um, Daniel Smith, um, as leader of the UCP, strikes me as much more of the kind of, like, potential glass cliff phenomenon or... Um, being brought in to try to, like, not saying plaster over problems, but certainly the previous leader was pushed out by the party, and then this is the new leader that's come in. Uh, And so when we see women in Daniel Smith's context, they're usually much more precarious. Uh, But, like, Alberta is one of the only places in Canada where when we end up having an election, uh, no matter which party wins, the likely premier-designate is going to be a woman based on who's leading the parties. I mean, I'm not saying that... Things are predetermined or that something exceptional um, won't happen before the next provincial election, but it, but it's looking likely. And the examples for this, um, like so Alberta, this is uh, the second time. The last time was in 2012. Uh, we've never seen this federally. We haven't really seen this in many other provinces. Internationally, I think this happened in New Zealand maybe once. Um, and so it's really an atypical phenomenon. But that it happens suggests that there is more space for women in politics than, say, what there would have been 50, 100 years ago. Do you think, Dr. Thomas, that this could encourage more women to step forward, knowing that the the like, I mean, we can't rule out the Alberta Party and all those others, but it looks like it's going to be either the NDP or the UCP. Do, do you think that this could draw more women into the fold? You know what I mean? Yeah, we have studied this in places where when you start to see women steadily coming in as elected representatives, usually just get studied at like the national legislature level, so like the equivalent of our House of Commons. But because 
people pay attention to their provincial governments in Canada, I think it works here too. Um, the generalization is that the more women get elected, the more women become interested in politics, but especially also girls get interested in politics. And it's kind of like the, if you can see it, you can be it. Uh, and it seems to be like, there's like a, my work has shown that there's maybe a one election lag. So if you get um, a bunch more women elected in one election and it just kind of keeps steadily increasing, the next election you start to see self-reported um, interest in politics in general uh, amongst women and especially young women and girls, that starts to march up alongside it, but lagging by an election. So it's one of these things where if increasing women actually sticks, as in like it starts and then it keeps going and it actually starts to march up towards parity, where you've got something that's gender balanced across women and men in a legislature, um, then that does have that kind of effect. What, what doesn't is if it stays low. Um, so the United States is a good example of this, where like they, they'll talk about the year of the woman being 1992, where they elected more women than before, but it was like a super low number before, and it was quite low after that. Uh, and so none of the uh, none of their institutions at the national level, at the state level is different, but at the national level, none of them have actually, like, women haven't been elected to them at the volume that they would need to for us to start to see this role model effect. Um, but in Canada, I think um, it's reasonable to it hypothesize that that's, um, as this progresses, that that's something that we would see. Have you done any research, Dr. Thomas, on, you know, voting behavior uh, when, when it comes to gender? Is there any connection at all or, or what, what have you learned? Yeah, so we have the field has studied this quite extensively. So in Canada, we've got something called a modern gender gap. Uh, and this is contrasted with the traditional one. The traditional one is that women would be on average more conservative or right-leaning in their um, party preferences compared to men. And in the past, this was predominantly explained by things like um, the kinds of like labor force participation that women were engaged in or not, um, religion and religiosity, like how devout people were, um, particularly in places that um, where the predominant religion was Christianity, um, so Catholicism especially, that, that informed that traditional gender gap. But we saw in Canada and a number of other democracies, that this there was a period of realignment, and then the realignment flipped, and so that means that men are more likely to prefer, on average, conservative parties, and women are more likely to prefer parties of the left. And that's what we see both in Canada and also in Alberta. Now, to be clear, when you focus on the difference between women and men, you need to make sure that you're not homogenizing between women and between men. So there's still lots of men that prefer parties on the left. There's still lots of women that prefer parties on the right. But if we're looking at, like, the average of all women together and the average of all men together, um, women are much more likely to prefer parties like um, the NDP um, and, like, the Reform Party, Canadian Alliance, Conservative Party of Canada for men on the right. And historically, federally, it's been very much a not a liberal thing. It's very much been, like, an NDP, like, Canadian Alliance or NDP, Conservative Party of Canada. Um, and provincially, um, we find a similar kind of thing as well. And so the explanation for this is that uh, men are more likely to think that close ties with the U.S. are a good idea. Um, when we ask about this in federal elections, women are a bit more skeptical, and that informs some of it. Um, men are more likely to prioritize issues like taxes. Women are more likely to prioritize issues like health care. Uh, and it could be because they engage with healthcare more, um, or because they work in healthcare more. Like there's a couple of explanations um, that inform that. But it's this issue prioritization. Um, women are much more likely to prioritize issues about women, as in like women get better representation when more women are elected. Again, not every woman agrees, but 
those kinds of ideas um, feed into that gender gap. And so we can explain it really well. Uh, and at this point, what makes it what's more interesting is when that gender gap goes away, not when it's actually present. So the norm is that it's present. And so in that sense, I would have cautioned folks against using gender stereotypes about like the sugar and spice and everything nice, um, because that particular stereotype about women in general is seen to be incongruent with doing politics. And so my own work has shown that there is a significant minority, about 20% of Canadians, across the ideological spectrum, across levels of education, across pretty much everything that we can um, think that it might vary against. Like literally 20% of folks think that men are naturally better leaders, quote unquote, naturally better leaders than women. And it has to do with stereotypes about what looks like a leader. And so if people are thinking that women are just like, sugar and spice and motherly and all of those gender stereotypes, that is seen as incongruent with politics. And the issue is that um, I think many of us would like our politicians to be nice. <laughs> like, we know that. I, we, I think we think that, like, policy gets better if people are cooperative and kind and that it's worse if they are belligerent and oppositional and unkind and cruel to each other. I don't think anybody likes that more negative side of politics. And so... Instead of applying gender stereotypes, I think as voters, there's space for us to demand a certain level of character and conduct um, from our politicians um, that transcends gender. Um, I know from my own work, I'm a bit cynical. I don't think voters actually do this. I think they do really lean into those stereotypes hard. Um, but there's always a new election is an opportunity to maybe use a different one um, and one that is equitable, um, perhaps, instead of just saying, oh, well, I think X about women. Uh, and so I don't necessarily think that they would make good politicians. That's um, the evidence is clearly running contrary to that. Dr. Thomas, appreciate your insights this afternoon. Thank you for this. I, thanks for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's Dr. Melanie Thomas, an associate professor out of the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary, um, talking about, well... Chances are really, 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 really good. We're going to have a female female premier after this election in the month of May. Barring any uh, unforeseen circumstances happening, the odds are that that's what's going to be happening. Really interesting conversation today on this International Women's Day. Money. Talking with your kids or grandkids about money. It Like, where do you begin? That's always been the toughest, uh, you know, situation for me. Like, how should I bring up the subject? And what age should I begin talking with my kids or eventually my grandkids about cash, about money, about debt, all these things? Well, thankfully, our next guest knows a lot about this. Krista Matthews is joining me now. Krista is a certified financial educator. Krista, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your time. All right, Krista, I have four kids. They range in age from 23 to 8. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, yeah, busy guy, I know. I, I love it, though. I love it. And, and teaching them is, you know, obviously that's a core value for a lot of parents, but how can we talk to our kids about money? And so why don't we start maybe with my youngster, my eight-year-old. How, like, how young should I start talking about money? And how do you suggest I start communicating with him, you know? 
Yes, definitely. He's actually in the perfect age range. It's said that money habits are formed by ages seven to nine. So it's never too early to start teaching your children the value of a dollar, right? Learning just basic financial concepts, such as how, you know, money doesn't grow on trees, how to save consistently, you know, there's a difference between wants and needs, things like that. Oh, and should I also be perhaps taking him to the grocery store with me and, you know, kind of price shopping and comparing and that type of thing? Definitely. And including them in family decisions is so important. It's really interesting that kids hear the way that their parents talk about money. They pick up on either the way parents argue about money and see it through the eyes of fear and scarcity, or if their parents see it as a positive, if they see it through the eyes of opportunity. Maybe, you know, you see money as a vehicle to say yes to what you need, uh, something to be responsible for. Um, it's, it's really important to make those decisions together as a family starting at a young age, and it only sets them up for success later down the road. When you say making decisions as a family, Krista, do you mean, um, you know, going through kind of the monthly budget with my kids, or do you mean, you know, f- like budgeting for like a family vacation, or, or what exactly do you mean? Sure. I mean, even just starting small, for example, if your kids are in soccer, you know, explaining to them that there is extra costs, right? Maybe costs for the classes, the cleats, the shoes, you know, the uniform, just really small things like that. And like you just said, even at the grocery store, you know, extra things that they need, you know, around this time of year, uh, you know, it, you know, the holidays just passed us. How much extra did everybody just spend on their credit cards and having to buy presents and go to family events and functions? And that all adds up, right? So just including them in those basic conversations gives them an idea of what money really is all about. Um, A lot of people ask about giving their kids an allowance. Should they start doing that? Should they participate? And I say yes. Uh, You know, teaching them to participate in the household, doing chores and such like that, you earn an allowance. It's very important. You earn an allowance. And it shows them how you exchange time for money when you work hard. And when you work hard, your reward is earning an income. And that income allows you freedom, right, to do the things you want to do. What age do you think, Krista, makes sense to start an allowance? Well, what's funny is, so my, I have two nieces and one on the way. So my sister, you know, really values teaching them these lessons early on. Um, her kids are two years old and four years old, so very small. So right now, instead of an allowance, actual money, she does a sticker chart and a treasure box. So very, very small. But she just is exposing them to these ideas, you know, rather than waiting until, you know, they're in high school, their high school seniors about to graduate or seniors in college about to graduate, and they have no idea how to navigate the real world. Rather, they were exposed to these ideas, and it's setting them up for a solid foundation as adults. I see. Okay. And and let's zip to, you know, teenagers now and, you know, part-time jobs and and, and that type of thing. How can we use that as a learning tool, Krista? Well, what's funny is this age range right now of, you know, even middle school, high school, and college, they're all just steeped in technology. They're all very savvy with technology. And, you know, our instinct's reaction is to Google it, right? To research ourselves. And it's really interesting that there's actually too much information out there. You know, when you type personal finance into a search engine, trillions of results are popping up. (laughs) And it's often 
very, very difficult to navigate on your own. So I would say, you know, once you're past the age of, you know, college and, and you know, you're starting to navigate the real world, ask questions. Just go ahead. Find a point of contact, find a resource for you to be able to sit down, you know, even with a financial professional and say, what does this all mean for me with the way COVID affected our world and inflation and all these this craziness of the market right now? You know, what can I do? And, you know, when you ask if you're just in high school, start with your parents and on and on. But I think it's so important to speak up and ask questions questions yes gotcha that's good to know um you know i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of wants right out there and and it's easy to kind of buy more goods and spend more money than you're taking in so how would you suggest talking to you know kids whatever age about debt oh my goodness i mean it's just so funny that we, we're we not taught how money really works in school, right? We're not taught how debt works and interest works. We're not taught the implications that debt will have on our finances just in years ahead, the very close, the near years ahead. And it's causing a lot of anxiety. It's causing people to you know live paycheck to paycheck, and they end up in debt with no idea how to get out of it. And I think you know the last few years have really created this heightened awareness and people are unfortunately buried in debt and you know even student loan debt oh my gosh I I work with people all the time who are 10-15 years out of college and they're still trying to pay down these student loan debts so I would say my advice to those people would be to be a self-starter start investing in your education and ask questions work with that financial professional because it's it's just daunting to go through on your own and just to live like that for years and years. And it's, it's just so funny that money is a part of our everyday life, yet most of us receive very, very little education on how it really works. You know, we're taught how to make money. We're taught to get a job, to get a degree, to get a paycheck. But, you know, it's, we're not taught how to manage money, how to build wealth and protect that wealth. It, we weren't exposed to those ideas in school. What is the rule of 72? You know, you hear of this occasionally, Krista, but what is that? Oh, my goodness. This is the rule that changed my finances. It's essentially compound interest, right? So you take the number 72 and you divide it into the interest rate that the bank is giving you. That's it. And that number tells you how many years it will take your money to double. And it's absolutely a number you need to know in order to plan accordingly. I mean, it's that's a game changer for your finances. The rule of 72, you take the amount of interest that your money or your bank is paying you for, you know, your savings account or whatever it happens to be, and you divide exactly. it by 72. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. And I mean, golly, the interest rates that the bank is giving us, I mean, what's the average right now? I think it's, you know, 0.06, you know, it's less than 1%, but, you know, just easy numbers. If your interest rate is 1%, 72 divided by 1% is 72 years to double. That is too long that you're waiting. That's a lifetime, right? It's, an, it's, a, it's a lesson in investing for sure. I love it. I love it. Krista, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I appreciate this. Absolutely. I'm so glad to be on today. I think the takeaway would just be to start earlier. Think ahead and plan ahead. Think ahead and plan ahead. There you go. That's Krista Matthews. Uh, She's a certified financial educator. Uh, For a bit of follow-up here and maybe some tips 
to kind of how you start the conversation with the little one in your life, be it your kid or grandkid, go to howmoneyworks.com, howmoneyworks.com slash learn more. This is also really close, almost exactly, but we're marking three years since the spread of COVID-19 was declared a worldwide pandemic. And a study just released about 30 minutes ago is looking at how we are doing mentally coming out of COVID. And the results of this study are surprising, very surprising. Dr. Danielle Rice is joining us now to discuss this. Dr. Rice is a psychologist, assistant professor out of McMaster University, and she practices at St. Joseph's Hospital in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, Dr. Rice, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me, Ted. Please feel free to call me Danielle. Okay, Danielle it is. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, before we get into the results of your research here, Danielle, maybe set up uh, how you gathered the data and where the information came from that you uh, got the results on. On, you know? Sure. So painting a little bit of a picture where early in the pandemic, there were lots of these news headlines and um, lots of fears that there would be something like a uh, mental health tsunami was a lot of times the word that was coming up. And we wanted to make sure that this is based on data. I mean, this assumption happened, which made sense because uh, this is a new experience, COVID coming up. Um, and it was a big change, big challenge. But we wanted to know, are we making this assumption off data? Of course, at that time we weren't, it was so early. So that was the emphasis for the study where let's set out and collect this data to compare mental health before COVID so that to during COVID. So we can see, are there any changes actually happening um, so that then we can make sure there's mental health care in place and supports in place. We certainly expected to find a change, um, but, but as you'll hear, the results were, were pretty surprising. So that was sort of why we did the, the research and we, we slogged through about 90,000 titles and abstracts to end up with 137 studies that did look at mental health um, before COVID-19 to those during COVID-19. Okay, so a lot of data you're basing it on. And uh, just to be clear for everyone, you focused on kids and adolescents, right? We actually focused on the whole general population. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, we had some specific subgroups we were really looking, really trying to get data for. Um, certainly kids and adolescents was in there, older adults, parents, um, healthcare workers, LGBTQ folks. Uh, really trying to get at any populations that would be of interest, but also just the general public. Uh, we took all data that we could find. And and the results, um, uh, surprising, right? Mm-hmm. I know, especially again, I'm, I'm a psychologist here practicing in Ontario, and the general population, for the most part, was resilient and adaptable, and there were very few changes overall that came out from this data. And this is, again, this is including 31 countries globally, most medium and high income, which is certainly something to consider. But no big differences found here for people's mental health before COVID versus during, which is, yeah, very surprising. Very surprising and actually goes against a lot of the like a lot of the narratives that we hear from, you know, governments and, and, you know, physicians and that type of thing. And I guess I guess that speaks to the whole need to do this study. That's, yeah, you're, you're bang on. And sometimes people will say, you know, why, why does this data look uh, perhaps different than what we assumed or some of these big headlines? And really, it's that method that we use where we're looking to compare before COVID-19 to during, as opposed to just taking a snapshot of during COVID-19 saying, you know, how are you coping or are you doing well? If we just take that snapshot without a comparison, very hard to get the context of, of what these numbers mean. So that's where our, our city is a bit nuanced in that way. And I think obviously biased, but I think a very important thing to be able to look at and compare to get a clear, accurate picture. 
resilience being a, a big word here. Um, how resilient are people? Are we slightly worse out of COVID or are we, you know, exactly the same we were mental health wise, you know, pre-pandemic? Yeah, um, what we were, what we found net net wise in terms of net changes that were pretty much the same as we were. That doesn't mean that some people didn't get worse, uh, but it also doesn't mean that some people didn't actually cope better. So not taking away the struggles that we know people had, there are struggles that came up. Certainly there are going to be individuals who have new onset mental health conditions. That's also the case just year to year in general. Um, so we don't take away from that. But in general, we, we actually find it kind of balanced out in terms of no big, massive change where there were some people would have certainly, unfortunately, struggled more. Others actually had some benefits come out of the pandemic. Perhaps that's more flexibility in their position. Perhaps there's more more time with family. And I think some other considerations are that our government and, and some governments around the world um, actually developed more mental health resources. So some of those accessibility barriers were reduced. So, for example, in Canada, our wellness together uh, Canada Portal got launched, and that was that, that is and was a free mental health resource that hadn't been available before COVID. Danielle, in, in your research and your findings after, you know, looking at so much data, were there any differences between gender? Yes. So this is where an important finding um, to, to add on to the general population of what we found is that women and females, there were some changes there. They were small overall, but still important because uh, when you take the whole subset of women and females, there was a finding of some worsening mental health among women and females. And that's important, meaning that um, we're going to need some resources available. And hopefully this is being considered from a health workforce standpoint where, you know, we have more psychologists or mental health professionals available and maybe even specific clinics. I mean, at, at St. Joe's, we have a women's health concerns clinic. And these may be things that are needed and that we should certainly be keeping an eye on and that hopefully some health systems decision makers, um, they're thinking about this when developing programs. The symptoms that were reported um, regarding women and they were experiencing a worsening of things, was it was it things like anxiety and depression or were there other things that were flagged in this study? Yeah, exactly right. It was uh, symptoms of depression, symptoms of anxiety and general, more general mental health overall. So really on each of these, we're, we were seeing some changes. So there is a bit of a consistency there um, that's important to consider that the picture kind of paints. Um, the picture that it paints is, is consistent among women and females. I'm chatting with Dr. Danielle Rice this afternoon on The Drive. Dr. Rice is a psychologist, assistant professor at McMaster University. She practices at St. Joseph's Hospital in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, she has asked me to call her Danielle, just to yes, let everyone please. know. Uh, and so, Danielle, going forward here... Um, is, is this all about getting the word out to, you know, physicians and policymakers? Because this is a surprise. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think that's an important group. Um, also, so we don't cut any of the resources that were made available. I mean, certainly some of that resilience could have come from um, some of the responses that were quick and happening at the government level. I think the other piece is that we, we have to remember for each other when these challenging things happen, most of the time there's a natural course of recovery and there is some resilience. We lean on one another. I mean, the pandemic, I think, is a good example where we became flexible doing things from Zoom. We became um, more connected with our technology to connect with friends and stay social, people exercising online together, watching Netflix online together. These are things that make, I, I think, make a difference and contributed to our resilience. And I hope that those things can stay and we can connect with them 
with one another and remember when these challenging things happen, okay, I can do this, I can get through this, I can support my loved ones when they go through challenging situations. It's a nice message to be able to share. Do you think, Danielle, that that may be why we did not, um, you know, end up worse off coming out of COVID regarding our mental health because of all the connectivity, because of the effort to, you know, make sure you go have those, you know, sidewalk hangouts and that type of thing? Yeah, I think in general, what we know of mental health is that social connections really help to buffer against some of these challenges that we face. And I saw lots of that. We saw lots of that in general. Our study didn't specifically look at that question, um, but in general, lots of studies have come out about social support and and buddy programs where individuals were um, almost like pen pals, but making their phone pals to people in long-term care homes. And yeah, I think this made a big difference, people connecting with one another and keeping that at the forefront of their mind as being something that was important. Danielle, thank you so much. I'm glad that this surprise has been discovered yeah. and there's data behind it. You know, I, I, I was I was I was afraid that things would be a little bit worse coming out of the pandemic. You know, I really was yeah. like many people were, I think. And, and I'm glad to see that the resilience is kind of the big takeaway word here. Thank you, Danielle, for your time today. Thank you so much. Take good care, Ted. That's Dr. Danielle Rice, assistant professor out of McMaster University. The study, by the way, we were just talking about is online now on the British Medical Journal's website. That's where it's been published. And that web address is bmj.com, bmj.com. All right, we're going to take a break. After that, we're going to take a look at the Alberta Film and Tax Credit and its impact on content creation in Alberta.